episode of Double Booked, the Wilmington Memorial Library's new podcast. I'm Erin Driscoll. I'm the Adult Services Librarian, uh, joined by Charlotte Wood, our um, Assistant Director. And we have a special guest this week who is much more experienced in podcasting (laughs) than us, uh, Technology Librarian Brad McKenna. Hey, Erin. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Welcome. Um, And yeah, so this week, We realized after wrapping up on our first episode that we, Charlotte and I, had somehow managed to sing the praises of The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett without actually speaking a word about what it is about. (laughs) Well, that's what you get when you have a couple of newbies podcasting, (laughs) and we were sort of tossing the football back and forth uh, without really explaining what the book was about. But it's about twins, Desiree and Stella. African-American young women about the age of 16. Uh, I think that's when the book sort of picks up. And they're growing up in the fictional town of Mallard, Louisiana, uh, where uh, their great, I think it was the great-great-grandfather had established the town for light-skinned African-Americans. And that sort of sets the tone of the book, and then the sisters' paths diverge. Erin, would you like to add anything more to that? Or do you want to... Sure. Well, I don't think it's too much of a of spoiler. It happens yep. quite <laughs> soon in the book, and it's yep. on the book flap. Yep. <laughs> um, one of the sisters um, decides to um, pass as white. Oh. She, yeah, she uh, takes a job, and they they never ask her in the interview, so she is passing, yeah. and and you know things kind of snowballed from there she she gets married she has a child and she kind of leaves her old life behind she never you know doesn't uh tell anything to her family and so you're kind of following these twins divergent paths yes. uh, wondering when they'll if they'll kind of get back together again it's yeah very good book yes yeah, a very good book that yeah we agree on that so yeah. anyway a little bit about the book so <laughs> now we'll go wrapping back <laughs> um the first thing we wanted to cover this week is the Reading Rivals competition that we have going with Tuxbury. Um, it is our first annual, hopefully annual, we'll see how it goes, <laughs> uh, competition against Tuxbury for the most minutes read by patrons at either library. It uh, started on October 12th and will be going through until the day before Thanksgiving, the plan being that we'll announce on Thanksgiving Day during the Tuxbury Wilmington football game. Oh, yes. yes. And it is open to all ages. So even if you read to your children, if your children are beginning to read. Um, yes, that counts double because you've double. listened <laughs> and <laughs> the children yes. have listened. So we need parents to sign up is what you're saying. Right. Yes. Every yes. Parent, so, parent in Wilmington yes. needs to sign up for this. Yes, sign up the whole family, please. <laughs> so, and, you know, Tuxbury's been doing a little trash talking. Uh, so, you know, they have. Yeah. They have. Yeah, Robert yeah. Hayes at Tuxbury <laughs> has, has made some mention of Tuxbury's, you know, football record, but I think he'll be surprised that, you know, touchdowns won't win him in a reading competition. Um, <laughs> so it's, all, it'd be, it's amazing how many minutes you can rack up if you sure. peruse the newspaper or anything in the morning for news. Yeah. Uh, if you listen to audiobooks, right. that counts. Um, and of course, any you know reading that you you do. Yeah, graphic novels, yes. comic books, right. mm. uh, magazines, yes. all count. So, yep. rack up those minutes. Uh, it's on the Beanstack app. Um, if you've done one of our reading competitions before, you'll already have it. And 
If you are not interested in an app, we will do the logging for you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Just That's bring right. those minutes to the library. <laughs> um, so with it, uh, this episode coming out in November, um, we wanted to give a nod, take a look at some classic books um, in observance of Veterans Day. I know, right. Charlotte, you have... Um, some recommendations right. for us. Right, yeah, we have a November theme here. So, yeah, I'd like to talk, first of all, a little bit about Veterans Day. It was originally known as Armistice Day, and it was first observed on November 11th, 1919, mm. which was one year after the end of World War One, And it didn't become a national holiday until 1938, and it the name wasn't changed from Armistice Day until 1954 under Eisenhower, and that's when it became Veterans Day in honor of all service men and women, uh, living or dead. It was a day to honor them and their service. So it's an easy day for me to remember. My mother was born on Veterans Day, so <laughs> <laughs> that was, um, you know, it was just an easy, it's an easy day for me to remember and to also honor my mother. Uh, I became, uh, so the books I'm gonna talk about for Veterans Day are actually focused on World War I. The 100th anniversary of the end of the war was uh, 2018. I realized that I knew very little about mm -hmm. World War I. I knew a lot about World War II. When I was in high school, that was really the predominant war. Yeah. Uh, you know, my father had served that generation, so it was just, mm. that was much more familiar to me. But World War I, I knew very little. I didn't know the causes of the war. It was, it was supposed to be the war to end all wars, <laughs> the Great War, and yet I knew nothing about it. So um, I, I read some books, and the books I found, these are not books that fly under the radar. These are books that you will find on the list of top books about World War I, but they may be ones that you haven't read either. So the first book I'm going to talk about conveys the experience of war. It's a book of fiction. It's considered a classic. It's titled All Quiet on the Western mm -hmm. Front. It's by a German author, Eric Maria Remarque. Uh, he published it in... Um, 1928, so it was 10 years after the war. But he was conscripted into the German Imperial Army at the age of 18, and he fought in the trenches. So he huh. wrote about what he knew. Um, and it's a, the reason it's sort of a timeless book is because it, it doesn't matter if you're German or an American, Algerian, an English soldier. The experience that he writes about mm -hmm. is a universal experience. It tells the story of Paul Bomber. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> a newly minted soldier who was cheered on by his high school classmates, his, uh, his teachers, you know, his village for joining the war. You know, at the beginning of a war, there's always this kind of this rah-rah feeling. And then there's the actual experience of war, which, um, you know, conveys, you know, and in, in this book, it conveys the mental stress and sort of the detachment from civilian life that they feel and sort of the sometimes the pointlessness of the experience and the long periods of boredom in between these extreme experience <sighs> of, of t I'll call it terror, yeah. uh, when the wars, when you know, the battles are actually happening. So again, it doesn't matter which side you are on or where the war takes place, it became an international bestseller and it inspired a new um, genre of war memoirs. And even though this is a book of fiction, it does touch upon his own experience. Uh, it's considered one of the great uh, war uh, books about war. I would put it up there with The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. And for me, it was a book that when I finished it, I knew it was a book that stood apart. It, if you had a shelf full of books and you could light up the ones that were like just really extra, extra good, 
this one would have lights beaming from it. So I would say that even though it is a book of war, even if you shy away from that, it, it for me it wasn't a difficult read, but it was really a um, just such a satisfying read. Also, just an aside on that, in 1933, under the Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels, uh, his, uh, Remark's writing was banned as unpatriotic. Oh, they removed it from the shelves. You couldn't, they couldn't, Germans couldn't buy a copy. And by this time, Remark had moved to Switzerland and had changed the spelling of his name back to the French spelling and kind of removed himself from German society. But that's just a little aside on that. The second book I'd like to recommend on World War I, it's a book of nonfiction. It's called The Guns of August by Barbara W. Tuckman. It was printed in 1962 and won the Pulitzer Prize for, non, for general nonfiction in 1963. And it's um, about the, uh, it focuses on the first months of the war and the decisions that led to the outbreak of the war and the immediate aftermath. Uh, it's a very occult, dense book full of facts, but it's not a boring. <laughs> it's not a boring book, so be careful. Don't don't take that and say, uh, uh. you know, it's really not a boring book, but it's very it's very dense. And so I tried listening to it on audiobook. I don't recommend that because it's just oh, I couldn't yeah. keep pace. At least my brain could not keep pace while I was driving <laughs> with all the facts in the book. So I got the print copy, and even when I was done, it's like a book of history. I went back and I had to peruse it again yeah. just to make sure I had things in order, the names right, so I could really understand the um, origins of the war. So I, again, it's a very highly regarded book, and I recommend that if you'd just like to understand why World War I happened in the first place. Uh, the third and last book I'd like to recommend is Birdsong by Sebastian Folks. It was published in 1990, uh, 1994. It's a love story with the backdrop of World War I. And when I was refreshing my memory about these books, I, I was looking online, and I'm going to quote from Goodreads. It says, as the young Englishman Stephen Raceford passes through a tempestuous love affair with Isabel Lazare in France and enters the dark, surreal world beneath the trenches of no man's land, Sebastian Falk, the author, creates a world of fiction that is tragic as A Farewell to Arms, which is a Hemingway book. So yes, there's an intense romance between the characters, Stephen Raceford and Elizabeth Azaire. And that's one part of the novel. And then there's Stephen's experience as a soldier in World War I, which again provides the reader uh, with an understanding of the horrors of war. The other part of the novel is Stephen and Isabel's granddaughter looking back, trying to make sense of her family and her grandfather's life. Uh, the book did receive critical acclaim. I thought it was well done. I recommend it for anyone who enjoys historical fiction, good storytelling, and good writing. And I'm also going to put one plug in for um, a, a documentary called the, uh, They Shall Not Grow Old. It was directed by Peter Jackson. Huh. It uses uh, original footage that was taken during World War I. A lot of the footage hadn't been seen in 100 years. Um, and through technological advances, they were able to colorize it, slow it down, so you felt that the Men, I'm going to call them men because it was mainly men that you mm. saw on the film, were kind of in your living room or right in the theater with you. And it really was very personal uh, and um, just very well done. So if you don't want to read and you just want to know a little <laughs> bit about World War One, or you want to do a little of both, the They Shall Not Grow Old by Peter mm. Jackson. <laughs> um, so those are my recommendations um, for 
for Veterans Day, and I don't know if Aaron or Brad, if you've read any of them or have any comments. If not, we'll move on to the next section. <laughs> I've been long-winded here, so I'm going to turn it over. No, I haven't read any of them, but I know um, in our conversations about uh, the World War One books you were going to recommend, uh, you had noted that was sort of the first you know, war writing that got away from the propaganda. Yes, mm. yes, right. It was re- it's, it's honest. <laughs> it's a mm. very honest account, yeah. Mm. Is that, so that, is that Peter Jackson? The Peter Jackson did the Lord of the Rings, that same is guy? That is the same Peter Jackson, All right, I'm sure. It's yes. kind of a common name. So. Yes, he <laughs> was, I, uh, you know, I have to be careful what you say on air because it becomes <laughs> history, but I yeah. believe he was commissioned oh, really? by a world, wow. Well, I'm going to stop there. Because <laughs> sure, my memory's enough. a little foggy on that, but I... I, I he has personal experience. Yeah. Well, sure. anyway, he... Yeah. But it <laughs> took a few years to make this film, yeah. but it was, it's well worth the wait and very well done. Excellent. Yes. Excellent. And uh, we also wanted to highlight, since uh, this episode's coming out in November, um, Native American Heritage Month, uh, which is part of the reason we've invited <laughs> uh, Brad McKenna here. Um, to talk a little bit about uh, his social justice book club sure. at the library um, and what they've been reading. And he's also been doing some research yes. on uh, Wilmington history. Yeah, so uh, we're reading for this. Uh, the social justice book club has started in the beginning of this year, and we read uh, Stamped for the first nine months of the year because the topic is, is, is kind of heavy. It's definitely kind of heavy. So we're taking it four chapters at a time. And so Indigenous Peoples, History of the United States is the title for um, October through no, uh, through January. Um, and so this is November, so it will be the, the meeting relevant to this podcast will be Thursday, actually, uh, November 18th. We usually meet on the fourth Wednesday, but the fourth Wednesday is followed by the fourth Thursday, which happens to be Thanksgiving this year. So we decided to move it because people have enough going on. Um, but the, sto- the the book is written by um, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, who is an indigenous person. Um, I don't have her actual tribe here, which uh, I should have prepared for, but I don't. Anyway, she is not like a white person writing about indigenous people, where which one of the reasons we're trying to do this is trying to give voice to the other the other voices um, that don't normally have it. Uh, the the book is 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 hard, <laughs> you know, it's a hard topic, but it's also giving uh, shining a light on a lot of things that were kind of in the hidden corners of history or glossed over. It, it's it's. It's unfortunate a lot of the history of indigenous peoples in this country, um, what you learn in school and the textbooks, it stops at like 1900, which is really unfortunate because it does put and does mean that kids grow up thinking that the indigenous peoples were something in the past. And so that's one of the first things that I took away from the first four chapters or so is it's mentioned a couple of times is you hear about all the all the battles and King Philip's War and all that. And then you might hear something about the um, Bureau of Indian Affairs in like the 50s when there's like a controversy. But it's unfortunate that you don't hear about what's going on with Native Americans or indigenous peoples today. Um, so that's one of the purposes of the book group is to kind of get an idea of what is going on. Um, and to that end, um, I know a lot of towns and libraries have been trying to do land acknowledgement statements, uh, just doing exactly what it sounds like, acknowledging the land that you're on, who was previously owned by a tribe. Um, it, it's tough to find the information because there's not really a lot of written record about that. Um, the Canada actually had a nonprofit 
excuse me, organization that put together a bunch of map. It's native-land.ca, and I use that to find out that um, the, the tribe in this area is the Massachusetts which shouldn't be much of a surprise. Um, but in my research, it's, it's interesting. The federal government actually um, recognizes over 500 tribes in the country, and Massachusetts isn't one of them. So it's really interesting. Um, and so I wanted to verify that fact because I'm not going to take Canada's word for an American um, tribe. And so I reached out to the Massachusetts tribe themselves, and they did, they did verify that it was our land. Uh, it was their land, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we're, we're working on maybe putting together some kind of land acknowledgement statement. There's a lot, of, a lot of history behind it, and it's tough to find that information, or any information, rather. So, yeah. Tough to know where to start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, um, I also had some recommendations of, you know, indigenous uh, writers and creatives okay. uh, that I wanted to, to highlight this month. And um, I think it's a good segue, Brad, because as you mentioned, you know, Often when we talk about indigenous peoples, you're right, we, we're talking about history. Yeah. We're talking about um, you know, things we've learned in textbooks. And so I've kind of chosen some you know, modern day Good, <laughs> uh, yeah. books and writers. Uh, the first, um, some of you will have heard of because it was quite a well-regarded book, um, They Are There by Tommy Orange. Uh, it was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and um, on a number of best book of the year lists when it came out, I think in 2018. Yeah, um, and I know Charlotte. I, you I did. Had I read, read it. Too. Yes, right. Yeah. It was. Uh, I, I agree. It's a very good book. Yep. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It starts with um, a great, like a very powerful prologue, kind of a nonfiction uh, series of vignettes written by the author uh, that uh, it pulls no punches. He kind of riffs off the image of um, that. Uh, Indian head test pattern that used to show on like old Mm -hmm. like you know TV stations after programming was done for the night, which is a wild concept to go (laughs) now. Programming just being done. (laughs) Oh, I remember that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so he uses that kind of imagery to also take us through a series of vignettes of um, you know several massacres and the Indian Extermination Act um, before kind of dropping us into the story in. Modern day mm-hmm. Oakland, California. Uh, so the book from there is kind of organized as has a large mm-hmm. cast of characters. Um, I think about twelve characters uh, in a series of kind of linked short stories, uh, which is a format I love. But I could see <laughs> how someone who prefers like a you know one protagonist to follow, mm-hmm. it, it might be a frustrating read. <laughs> um, but it, it's very good. Um, all the characters in it are kind of struggling with one way or another, um, kind of with the what it means to be an urban Indian, um, mm-hmm. what it means to kind of struggle with identity and authenticity. Uh, one of the characters in the book Googles, uh, I think their Google search is like, what, how to be a real Indian. Oh, jeez. <laughs> um, so it's a, it's a really compelling and, and pointed book. Um, and his, his writing's just very, you know, it covers difficult topics, but mm-hmm. very witty and frank writing. Uh, so that's There, There by Tommy Orange. Um, next up is a nonfiction book um, by Cliff Nesteroff. It's called We Had a Little Real Estate Problem. Um, this is kind of a kind of survey of uh, indigenous uh, stand-up comedians oh. and also kind of weaves in um, the history of Native Americans in the entertainment industry. So Interesting. 
it takes us from, you know, vaudeville through to like the kind of cowboy and Indian movies of like the 50s, uh, you know, with actors in red face and oh, things yeah. like that, um, through to like Charlie Hill on The Letterman Show. Um, the title of the book's taken from one of his punchlines, uh. one of his jokes. <laughs> um, all the way to like a modern day comedy uh, troupe, the 1491s, um, oh, kind of a take on, you know, 1492. Yeah, right, right. Um, Columbus. Uh, so it's great. Uh, Cliff Nesteroff himself is not an indigenous person, but he interviews, I think, about 25 uh, native stand-ups for the book. Oh, interesting. And their interviews are directly in there, so you're definitely yeah. getting people in their own voice. That's interesting. I remember hearing something about that, the littering like commercials in like the 70s where the, the, uh, the, the Indian or Native American has like that tear. Yes. He's he's not a Native American. The actor was Italian American, and I remember reading about that. So it'd be interesting to see if anything is mentioned about that uh, decision. <laughs> it is. It is. Oh, good. Because um, a lot of the comics in the book kind of make reference to that. Oh, good. For a couple reasons. First, because it was an actor in right. Red Face, which was very common. Um, yeah. A lot of the tribal nations actually kind of organized to um, create a list of people that were interested in acting in films um, mm-hmm. to kind of insist that films hire oh. you know, actual indigenous yeah. actors for those roles. Yeah, I was thinking as you're talking, because I'm, I'm older than both of you, and thinking back to <laughs> when I was a kid and watching TV. Of course, Westerns were very yeah. popular when uh, I was in the 60s. Yeah. And I'm trying to think back to all the, 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 the I'll call it the, the Indian, you know, the right. uh, parts in... TV shows and movies that I saw. It was always, you know, there was the good guys and there were the bad guys. Yeah. And we know who the bad guys were. Yeah. Right? Yeah. In, the, yes. in the Western sense. You know, you think back to what you were exposed to as a child. But anyways, yes, good yeah. for him for writing this book and yeah. bringing yeah. it to attention. Yeah. Well, another thing that they talk about with that commercial is yeah. kind of, um, you know, we have this kind of mythic idea of like, the like mm. stoic, serious, mm-hmm. you know, Native American. Mm-hmm. That's how Native Americans are often represented right. in entertainment industry but these stand-up comics talk about how that could not be further <laughs> from the truth <laughs> um you know how really like humor is like a huge yeah. part of their you know families and friends and like their communities like joking is is huge and it yeah. also just it's very interesting it goes into a lot of the logistics of um you know a lot of these people aren't performing in like stand-up meccas like new yeah, york or sure. um la like they have to kind of drive long distances mm-hmm. between venues um sometimes like on reservations sometimes these venues have never had a stand-up comic before oh. so like they don't have lighting or oh, anything <laughs> um so but it's it's really a, a very interesting read um i always want to know more about history but i'm terrible at like cracking a, a straightforward yeah. history book yeah. so anything that can kind of I can learn from, but at a at an angle, <laughs> is, sure. is great for me. Um, and kind of on the the comedy track, the last thing I wanted to recommend is not actually a book; it's a TV series. Um, it's on Hulu, FX on Hulu, I think it's called. So I think it's on both FX and Hulu. <laughs> oh, okay. It's called uh, Reservation Dogs. It's a comedy series. It's fantastic. It's co-created by uh, Sterling Harjo and Taika Waikiki. Oh, wow. Um, and stars four young indigenous actors. Um, they're kind of teenagers in a small, like, 
Oklahoma town. It kind of feels like the, the outsiders, sort of. Oh. Like they're just kind of kicking around. They're getting up to mischief, um, <laughs> trying to get together enough money to get to California. <laughs> um, and it's it's very funny. Um, and it's like really been kind of heralded as a huge breakthrough for representation mm. because, you know, the producers, the directors, writers, actors, um, every level of production has indigenous people That's great. working on the project. Um, it's also just <laughs> very funny. Oh, <laughs> like good. I don't want to get away <laughs> from the fact that it's very funny. Um, it kind of has, you know, some surreal humor. If you've ever seen any of uh, Taika Waikiki's other films, like uh, I think he did Thor Ragnarok yes. <laughs> and um, <laughs> the kind of mockumentary uh, What We Do in the Shadows. Oh, right. The vampi- about vampires, <laughs> yes, right? Yes, about vampires. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he has kind of like a surreal humor, yeah. and, and that's definitely seen here. Uh, one of the characters, Bear, that we spend the most time with, he'll occasionally like get like punched out or faint or something, <laughs> and he has this vision of like a... I guess you would say like a spirit guide, like that's just every Native American stereotype rolled yeah, into one. Because right. of course, like, you know, he's been watching all the same movies and TV yeah, shows as sure. the rest of us. So it ha- it's it really worth a watch. Um, very, very funny. Sounds <laughs> good. Put that on my short yeah. list for this yeah. winter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so... That won't count towards reading rivals, but the rest of <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the books we've mentioned will. Yeah. <laughs> so if we right. want to rack up those minutes. And I know we sometimes we talk about the books and we only mention the title once. We'll have them on our website, right? For, yes. Uh, we'll have a landing page on our website for anyone interested. <laughs> yes, by and, the time this um, comes out. <laughs> by the time this comes out, yeah, it's in progress. But yes. I know sometimes it's hard to jot down titles as yes. people are speaking, so you can visit our website yeah. shortly, give us a week or so, and we'll have uh, some information up about the books that we've spoken yes. about today. Yeah. So uh, tune in uh, next month. We hope to release these on the second of the month. Uh, for our next episode. Thank you for joining us today, Brad. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks.